0: Our scripture today is Luke 2, 22, when the When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present them to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord so
1: that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your heart too. Amen. Well, good morning, church. So make sure this is uh, up and rolling. All right. So i got a question for you. What wakes him up in the morning? Uh, what, what What keeps this guy in the fight? When the odds are stacked against him, and they're always stacked against him, what keeps him marching forward? Why doesn't he give up? Why doesn't he ever stop? Um, those are some of the questions that kind of go through your mind when you uh, when you watch John McClane trapped in the high-rise, fighting against twelve armed assassins, trained crimi- trained crim- uh, criminals that have uh, anti-missile, anti-tank missiles at their disposal, uh, and all of this against the, the you know the great antagonist Hans Gruber, also known <laughs> as the Sheriff of Nottingham, or Snipe. Snape, whatever his name is. John McClane is the, the protagonist, of course, in the movie um, Die Hard. Um, it's a movie where this character plays, well, a, a hero that just will never, ever, ever give up. That, that's why they call the movie Die Hard. Because, like the battery, John McClane never, ever, ever gives up. And I also recognize, right, you're looking at me like, okay, this is a Christmas series, right? Why are we talking about John McClane? Why are we talking about... Die Hard. I recognize it's not really a Christmas movie, in fact, it's only on the Christmas list because the storyline takes place at a Christmas Eve party, and of course, by about three weeks into the Christmas season, I don't know about you, but I am really tired of the Hallmark movies, right? I need sort of a cleansing of my mental palate. And Die Hard is one of those movies that sort of gets me back to, to life in the big city. But it makes you wonder, you know, when you think about this story, um, you recognize it's not really a Christmas story. But that's the reason I'm looking at it. Because if you look at the Christmas story the way we always look at the Christmas story, you kind of walk away with sort of a surface view of what God is up to in the world. In fact, the, the, the series that we're in is really designed to take these lenses, these narratives from our culture, allow us to look through them so that we can get underneath what we often do with the the Christmas story. It's it's so much glitter, so much joy, so much beauty, uh, decoration almost. And so last week we took a look at the the nightmare before Christmas and took a look at the need and the story of Christmas. You know, if you get beyond the fact that Jesus came, if you actually look at why he came theologically in the narrative there and even just self-reflectively, can we see there's a nightmare Without Christ as king, things are bleak. A Christmas story is darkest before the dawn. Thankfully, the story doesn't just have darkness. It also has a great deal of determination. It's not just a story of darkness. It's a story of light. A story of hope. Well, another character I want to take a look at this morning. Simeon. What wakes him up in the morning? Ever thought about that? What keeps him in the fight? What are, when the odds are stacked against him, and believe me, the odds are stacked against him, why does he keep marching forward? Why doesn't he give up? Why doesn't he ever stop? You know, Simeon wasn't facing um, 12 angry men with guns. But he was facing 12 apostate tribes. He was uh, facing uh, uh, the people of God, Israel, Jerusalem, at one of its darkest moments. Do you realize when the Christmas story takes off, although Israel is back from captivity, they're not really back from captivity. They're occupied by Rome. The the throne, the monarchy is in the hands of a madman, a megalomaniac who's willing to kill his own children and everyone else's. The high priesthood has been sold off to the highest bidder. The high priesthood actually would rotate between five wealthy significant families in Israel by the time Jesus shows up. Uh, The the people are scattered. There there, there are uh, some remnants of, of faithful people there, but... By and large, they need to come to repentance. That's why John's on the scene, calling Israel to repentance. There were Sadducees, and Pharisees, and the Innocene, and Zealots. All these different groups all had different ideas of what Israel's future should be. And at times, John the Baptist would look up and say, as he sees these groups approaching, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that comes? Jesus would say, oh Jerusalem, you're like this fig tree that, that promises fruit but withers on the vine. At one point he even says, you are a perverse and faithless generation. To use the vocabulary of the present tree, right? Um. What's the term? Jerusalem was a religious and political swamp. Mm-hmm. And yet every morning, Simon would wake up, would say his prayers, give it his breakfast, and he would march against the swamp to the temple with a smile on his face because he heard a still and quiet voice who told him, at one point in the story, we don't know when Simeon was told, but at some point in the story, maybe maybe it was when he was praying one day, and and, and the Holy Spirit showed up and whispered in his ear. Maybe it was at one of the rituals or festivals that of Israel, uh, a Day of Atonement or or a High Holy Day. Maybe it was on the way uh, downtown, where where a Roman guard grabs one of his fellow uh, Israelites and, and abuses him, or maybe as he walks into the Temple Mount, where. The um, the place where the Gentiles are has been turned into a den of thieves. Who knows when it happened? But at some point in this man's life, that still small voice spoke. Before you die, you will see Messiah, and that's what we read this morning. A, a story. A Christmas story. A man who approaches the baby Jesus, and almost like one of those scenes from, um, from The Lion King. You know, I know, I know the, the picture we have of him embracing him, but for some reason, I can't get Rafiki out of my mind. Right? I just kind of see him taking the child, embracing him, and lifting him to the heavens, and declaring what he declares. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your what? Your salvation. What you've prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This morning, church, as we transition from the nightmare before Christmas, from the... Description of the human need in the Christmas story. As we transition to the lens or the eyes of another, like Simeon, we do so, and from darkness we trans we transition to light, and we discover the premise of our lesson: that hope leads to a die hard life. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray right now as we enter into your word, as we enter into this story, as we begin to unpack it, that you would speak to us. That your voice would be heard in the, in the halls of our hearts. That you would do with Lydia what, what, what you did with Lydia, with us, God, that you would open up our hearts in our minds and whatever ever it is, whatever word of truth we need this morning, that we would hear it as we study the story of Simeon. As we think about the Christmas story, the, the, the babe Jesus, as we consider our Lord. God, would you begin to work afresh in us and anew within us. Would you speak hope to our hearts? Would you help us live lives of great determination and joy, of spiritual resiliency, a die-hard life? I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, if we're going to get to a die-hard life, we're going to have to know some things about hope. And I think Simeon's perspective here about hope, if we will embrace his understanding of hope, I think his sort of determination, his ability to, to march against the swamp of his, of his day, of Jerusalem of his day, will allow us to have the same sort of determination and fire and, and smile upon our face as we march against the challenges that we face. And believe it or not, the first point is probably the least intuitive. You see, hope is one of those strange things. Hope actually begins in hopelessness. Actually, hope only begins in hopelessness. G.K. Chesterton, a a very famous Christian author, says the phrase hope means hoping when things are what? Are hopeless. Or there's no virtue at all. As long as it matters, um, as long as matters are really hopeful hope is merely flattery or platitude it is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength paul says something similar he he says listen uh, no one hopes for that which they already have you can't have hope unless things are a bit impossible christian hope isn't isn't hope for the possible christian hope is passion For the promise of God in the impossible. Christian hope begins with hopelessness. With, I think as Brian saying just a moment ago, with none of what? Self. And all of thee. This is where Simeon's at. We we don't really see that because we see this story as here's a guy who finally gets everything he hopes for. And and yet we we, we somehow kind of gloss over this phrase that, that Luke tells us in Luke two twenty five. It says that well it says that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. By the way, if you watched the presidential funeral, you heard the consolation of Israel read by the president's granddaughters. Um, you you heard it in the Old Testament. You heard it in uh, Revelations twenty one and twenty two. I think Brian mentioned this morning uh, in, in regard to the Bible class, if you really understand the Hebrew scriptures, you'll understand a bit about, about revelation. It's because revelation is the consummation, the final act in God's consolation for His people. But what was fascinating about the consolation here is that it comes from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah as a book, is, is fascinating and, and so many levels, but it's really broken down into three main categories. Chapters 1 through um, 39 are all about look out, your idolatry, your self-righteousness, your neglect of the poor is going to lead you right into Babylonian captivity. Here come the bad guys. Chapters 40 through 55 are the prophecy of God to the people who are actually in captivity. And chapters 56 on to the rest of the book are really what happens after they return. So Isaiah is a very comprehensive Sort of prophet and 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 prophecy and the idea of the consolation of Israel actually comes from Isaiah 40, the first part, uh, the very first text in in the section directed to them in captivity. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, God is breathing comfort to you, he's encouraging you. And this whole section from from 40 to 55 are all of God's promises for them at their most desperate hour. What this means, now think about this. Simeon is in the temple. He's in the temple. There's, there's an actual temple, there's an actual priesthood, there's an actual, well, sort of an actual king. And in many people's eyes, Israel has been restored, and yet Simeon is still looking for the consummation of Israel. Why? because he's discovered he can't find hope in the present story he knows it's a swamp he knows they're still ultimately in spiritual captivity see if we're going to if we're going to have a die hard life <coughs> One of the first things we have to discover is there's only one place where hope is found. There's only one place. You can't build your hope on anything less. All the alternatives are failures, are lies. They don't live up, they don't measure up to what we need. To live live a die hard life a life of determination and hope it means we begin by recognizing the hopelessness none of self none of my nation none of my priesthood none of my religion none of my heritage none of my spouse none of my family none of my business none of my strength none of my goodness in all of the hope springs from hopelessness. That's how you live it, a die-hard life. You also have to have a hope that does something for you, right? I mean, that's how it really works. If your hope isn't doing anything for you, it's not really hope. That's how hope works. Hope has two dynamics, right? There's an object of your hope, and then there's the experience of your hope. Uh, There's something or somebody that you're placing your trust and your hope in, and you're gaining strength, or you're gaining wisdom, or you're gaining sustainability from whatever it is you're placing your hope in. And if it doesn't pay off, if it's not really helping, then it's not really hope. And this is one of the things that Simeon's perspective helps us to understand. Simeon's perspective says, really, hope isn't about, and listen to this carefully, hope isn't about getting a roof over your head. As important as that is, hope isn't about your body being healed. At least not initially. Hope isn't about finding the people in your life that make you feel comfortable and loved and accepted. Hope ultimately is about our souls. It's about what we need in relationship with our, with our God. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 26, 26, and 27. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their what? Your soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. This is a a phrase that Jesus is giving to disciples. He is uh, developing disciples as He marches toward Jerusalem. And uh, many of them are on board because, at least initially, because He's doing something that no one else has ever done at least the the miracles. He, he seems impressive, and yet when Jesus begins to talk about how their hope is going to have to transition from their uh, usually uh, normal sort of situation, what they expected Messiah to do, uh, into this life of of total dependence on God, all of a sudden they start making excuses like, "Oh, well, I want to get on board with you because you're powerful, but you're asking me to to put." But God, before everything else, before my family and my heritage and my expectation of what Messiah was about, and Jesus in response says, hey, what's more important? That you get everything you thought you were hoping for and lose your soul. What's most important? It's our our relationship with God. And guess what? The captivity that Israel found themselves in, the greatest captivity Israel ever found themselves in had less to do with a foreign king who took over Jerusalem and way more to do with their own foreign monarchy upon their own lives and in their own heart. That's why a little bit later on in Isaiah 40, when you begin to read, all of a sudden the hope and the comfort that God gives Israel and begins to encourage them about the Lord's strong arm, lifting them out, becomes a story about a person, a suffering servant, who's going to do something on behalf of Israel. Isaiah 53, uh, verse 4 and 6 says, Surely he, he, He took upon the pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his what? To our own ways. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See the captivity that Israel was really under wasn't a Babylonian king. I mean, that's the physical reality, but spiritually speaking, the the foreign king was themselves upon the throne of their own life. Their greatest problem was their sins and their iniquities. Not their place in their world, but their place before God. Not their provisions, not the roof over their head, but whether or not God was king of their life. That's why when Jesus came and every man made a big deal about Rome being in charge and everyone expected him to say, hey, Rome is the big problem. He says, no, Rome is just a symbol of the real problem. The real problem is we all want to be king. We all want to rule our own throne. We all have gone our own way. Real hope is dealing with the real captivity. Real hope is freedom from the real captivity. If God gave us everything we ever hoped for physically, relationally, uh, sociologically in our life, and we still didn't have God as king, it would be a waste. That's why it's so important that we never ever fall victim to really what is considered liberal theology. We want a good Jesus who's a good teacher, but none of that gooey blood stuff. I've actually had people approach me from time to time and say, you know, I wish you would talk less about the sacrifice and the blood and more about the abundant life. Because that blood stuff grosses me out. And if you really want people to come to your church with young families, they don't want to hear about blood and sacrifice, and sheep, and lambs, and all of that. In fact, I think it's Rick Ashley that tells a story one time about a minister, a friend, or somebody from his church came forward and um, and said, you know, Rick, I think uh, more people would come to your church if you would stop talking about all the gore and the lamb and the sacrifice. And he says, oh, really? So we'll talk about Jesus as as teacher? He goes, yeah, I like Jesus as a teacher. He goes, oh, good. So you think... Jesus could effectively communicate to you and to this culture? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, then when you hear Jesus say, uh, keep the law and keep it perfectly, you can do that, right? He said, whoa, 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 wait a second. Now, Jesus can be a teacher, but there's no way I can keep the law perfectly. He goes, well, then you don't need just a good teacher. You need Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We need more than a good teacher. A good philosopher, a a, a a visionary. We need a savior. Amen. We need a savior. One that's going to deal with our guilt and our shame. Do you realize that apart from apart from a Christianity, the best people can offer you is sort of a life of denial. So, so if, if, if you come into uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of settings where people are dealing with guilt and shame, um, a lot of secular counselors will, will say, well, let's deal with that guilt and shame by, by entering your worldview and your value system. And let's, let's wonder why it is you're, you're feeling bad. Well, you're feeling bad because you broke your, your covenant with your marriage. And so what you're going to do is you're going to help this guy by saying, well, listen, um, she wasn't good for you anyways. And really, what's most important is self-awareness and well-being. And so, the best thing for you to do is just move on. Don't worry about the problem of the past. Just, just move, or just move forward. I have a friend who who uh, who works uh, helping people as a as a life coach, and his thing is is he he sort of he sort of denies the impact of past life, and he does it because it's really. Really burdensome to deal with your sin and the shame and the past, and so how do you keep moving forward if people are holding on to the past? Well, he says, "Well, don't worry about the past. Just bury it." He doesn't say bury it, but he says just move on. But that's not—I mean, what else can they offer you? See, the only Christianity, only Jesus can offer you forgiveness for the stuff that you rightly did. When you're feeling like a jerk because you're a sinner, you don't get out of it just by pretending you're not. You find forgiveness. My sins have been forgiven. Not just buried in the past or beneath philosophy and our captivity. Our greatest need isn't food on the table and something over our head. Our greatest need is is to get that foreign king called ourselves off the throne and allow Jesus to be king. Allow Jesus to deal with the sin in our lives. There is nothing as sweet as going to bed in the peace of Jesus Christ. When you lay your head down, you can say, you know, I didn't do it perfectly today, but I'm covered. My sweet Lord loves me forgave me. I'm good. You can live a die-hard life that way. When you know, number one, that nothing in this world can be your hope except for God. And number two, when you realize that your hope has to deal with the real problem. And the real problem is not all the stuff we often talk about. It's whether or not you're on the throne or Christ is. If God handles that, oh man, You can live a life of great endurance. One of the other things this story tells us about hope, not only does hope begin with hopelessness, and hope has to deal with the direct issue, which is our sin problem. Uh, Number three, hope, praise God, is a person. That's what I love about this text. Hope is a person, right? Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simon took him in his arms. Can you imagine embracing Jesus as a child? Just for a second, just place yourself there. You pick the little boy up and you embrace him, knowing that one of these days he's going to be picking you up and embracing you. Salvation is a person. Jesus said it this way in John 17. Verse uh, 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I love this text. It bothers me so much that when people read this text, they see or they hear uh, exclusive claims, and they're upset by them. Right? What they hear is Jesus saying, uh, all the rest of that stuff doesn't work. You have to come through me. Well, that's only bad news if the rest of that stuff works. Right, right. Every other world religion says their their religious leader, their saviors came and delivered a program or a process or rituals, whereby if you follow them, you take my you know prescription, take my two time all religious pills, you'll wake up better in the morning. Christianity dares to tell the truth, like we talked about this morning in our Bible class. The land is not ours. We are radically un. Deserving of what we have. We could never take it to begin with. It has to be given to us by another. Our salvation is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Your, listen to me, your church doesn't save you. Your obedience doesn't save you. Your steps don't save you. Your rituals don't save you. H2O doesn't save us. God does. Now, now, now don't get me wrong, those things are important. But what do they reflect? They don't reflect our work to earn our salvation. Paul would say they're simply our amen. Listen to what he says here in 2 Corinthians. love this passage. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made. No matter how many promises. You think of all the promises God has made. They are yes in what? Christ. Christ is how he comes to back. Christ is how they are, are actuated. Christ is how they are completed. How it becomes real. And what's our response? And so through Him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Think about it this way. Everything in this life, every promise God ever made is rooted in what Christ has done. And our life is an ex- it's just one giant amen. It's us saying, I trust in this Jesus. He is standing on my behalf. And aren't you glad salvation's a person and not a process? I mean, seriously, uh, if it's a process, guess who's responsible? It's you. But if it's Jesus, He's responsible. See, you don't have hope if it's up to us. Our track record isn't very good, amen. We kind of tend to, you know, mess things up. And so God didn't leave salvation into the hands of men; He took care of it Himself and His Son. And our response is the Amen. When we're baptized, you know what a baptism is? It's an Amen. I think. Peter said, an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Not the removing of filth from the flesh, but an answer to God. What, what is communion? It's an amen. It's not something that you're lost all week until you come back and take it again and then you're good again for another week. And then it wears off and you come back and you get another one. That, that's not how it works. This is simply our Amen. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Christ saved me. Christ saved me. Christ saved me. Man, I'm telling you, the life you can live, it's a die-hard life. You can't be stopped. You won't be stopped. You can march against the swamp of this life and not be stopped because you live a die Hard life because of hope, because of the Christmas story. And guess, church, this is not just pie in the sky, by the by wishful thinking. I know this is true because of people like this. His name is Polycarp. And if you ever do any, any study on, on some of the early martyrs of the Christian faith, this guy he is just amazing. One of the unique things about Polycarp is he was one of um the only martyrs that we have on record who actually knew the Apostle John, right? He was a disciple of John, and his story is a fascinating one. So Polycarp has grown old, and he's like 86, and Rome is getting one of the times in Rome's uh, history where they are upset with the Christians because they're atheists, right? Christians are atheists not because they don't believe in Yahweh, but because they don't believe in all the gods of Rome, including Caesar. And so they decide they're going to pressure Polycarp into, um, into confessing Caesar as Lord so that they can kind of squash the rebellion of Christianity that's, that's kind of trickulating and, and, and moving around. And uh, so they send Roman guards to pick him up. And when the Roman guards get to the door, guess what he does? He doesn't hightail it out of there. He doesn't get like in a basket like Paul, get (laughs) lowered out the back. Um, He lets them in to a feast that he made in their behalf. He opens the door and eats with them. And you can imagine the Roman gods are like, what? (laughs) You know, like it really disarms them in many ways because this is a virtuous man in many regards to them. And he's he's not fighting them, he's not. He's not cursing them. He's not taking up arms against them. He's feeding them. And, and, and as the story goes, the, the guards begin to kind of get sort of a, a guilty conscience for what they're doing because they're marching him to the pro council, and the pro council is going to make an ultimatum. And he gets there, and he makes the ultimatum. And they tell him, denounce Christ, or we're going to throw you to the beasts. And every time Polycarp was like, bring it on. I mean, this is John McClane, man. This is, this is a diehard life. They said, don't you realize that we're going we're gonna to burn you at the stake? And Polycarp literally says, you know, Jesus has been my king and savior all my life. And he's never let me down. Why would I do that now? And he literally says, bring on the flames. The God that delivered me to the pyre will also rescue me from it. If you notice in the picture here, on the, I guess it would be the left side, those little red marks, those are flames. You notice the flames aren't actually on him, they're just around him. Well, he, he went to, the, uh, to be burnt at the stake. They were getting ready to, to pierce his hands and hold him down. And he says, You don't need that. I will stand here in the flames. And he stood in the flames, and they, the flames didn't burn him. The accounts say that they were like a flame; they were like a, a, a boat's sail that caught the wind, and it just sort of, it just sort of parried around him the whole time. And instead of burning flesh, they smelt incense, as if his life was quite literally a living sacrifice. And it was going on so long and making them so uncomfortable, finally the proconsul said, okay, put a, steer, a spear in him. And they finally, they, they put a spear in him and he breathes this last. And as the record says, his blood quenches the fire. That's a die hard life. Here's a man who knew hope began in hopelessness. A man who understood that he was forgiven. Everything else is gravy. And he knew above all. That his Savior never abandoned him. It wasn't, hey, I'm a good guy. Don't put me on the cross. Don't burn me alive. It was, that's my king. That's my savior. How could I possibly deny him now? Oh, for a die-hard life such as that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, I pray for die-hard lives. I pray for great determination in the lives of the people at New Beginnings and the life in my life, God. Father, may the world look at us and say, "What gets them up in the morning?" What? What is the answer? Why are they always, even when everything is, is down and they're stacked against them, why are they always celebrating? Why are they always full of joy? What is it about them that, that keeps them moving in the right direction? How do they, God, may that be the testimony of your church and of our lives Father, may we recognize that there's, there's nowhere else to place our hope. God, I know in a, in a church as, as large as this, as many people in here, and myself included, we have a tendency to, to put our hope in lots of different things that don't belong to you. That aren't you. Father, I know tonight, this morning rather, that there are people who are placing their hope in the approval and the accolades of people. Their day, their life, their ups and downs in life are dependent on what someone significant to them thinks about them. God, I know people People often place their hopes on whether or not they, their bills are paid. Their hope is predicated on whether or not they have food in their belly or if their health is in the right place. Or if their marriage is is all okay. God, we, we place hope in so many things. God help us to recognize our hope belongs exclusively to you. None of self, none of anything else, and all of you. God, forgive us of living such small lives of faith sometimes because we're afraid. And give us great courage to live as Simeon did, as Polycarp did, as your son did. May we live a die-hard life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen
0: that